morning, church. Our scripture reading this morning um, from the Old Testament is from Exodus chapter 15, verses 19, 19 through 21. For when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went, af went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And our New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. <coughs> and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Adam. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here to preach to you as we start our season in Advent. Um, Advent is, is merely a word that, when just roughly translated, means arrival or coming. Right? It's the anticipation of God's people for the coming of Christ. And just like the Old Testament people were a people of Advent uh, in waiting the birth of our Savior, so to uh, us as the church are an Advent people, awaiting the second coming of Christ. And so uh, the Christmas season, the Advent season, is an opportunity for us to reflect on what does it mean to wait for the arrival of Christ? What does it mean to live in a, a world where there's many things to be afraid of, many things to be anxious about, many things that uh, gar, uh, just, just cover us around us that we can't even wrap our heads around. How do we look to the Lord in this uncertainty? And so for the next four weeks, we'll be talking about people of Advent. We'll be talking about people in Scripture who were awaiting the coming of Christ and either were able to see him or were able to experience in part what he would do. And this week, we turn to a very neglected character in Luke chapter 2 a character that, whom you may not have necessarily known to exist in Scripture because she only gets these three verses. Her name is Anna. Now, sadly, Anna gets no love around this time of year, but I want to break down these verses because so much comes out about life, expectations, hope, faithfulness, and purpose in light of Jesus' arrival. And in looking at this text here today, we will realize that Jesus' arrival gives purpose to life in ways that no one could expect. So, before we begin, let's pray together. Father, may your reality for our lives be better than all of our hopes and expectations. May your spirit guide us in the preaching of your word and pierce our hearts, Lord, that we would see Anna's story as our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, every year around this time, uh, Google releases its yearly video called The Year in Search. Now, they haven't released 2023s yet, um, but in 2022, what they try to do is they try to condense everything that the world searched for on their search engine and tries to condense it down into a two-minute video. Uh, now, for a tech company that is popular for its you know, exact algorithmic precision, you know, engineering mastery, sort of app-driven logic, uh, the video in 2022 takes a very philosophical and, and, and dare I say, religious tone. It asks this question, right, can I change? I find this fascinating because it speaks something about the world that we live in. Where expectations aren't met and reality sets in, we ask, can I change? Can anything be different than they are now? Behind that thought is that our reality doesn't live up to our hopes. It doesn't live up to our expectations and the expectations that we place on others around us, maybe even the church. We begin to doubt ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, and we start wondering whether or not we should really believe what we've really believed our entire lives. Our text today is about a woman named Anna that Luke is trying to help us understand about the life that was expected versus the life that God gives. On the surface level, Anna's life and the way she lived, it seemed like a person who didn't live up to the person she was expected to be. But as Advent season teaches us, ordinary lives are given extraordinary purposes because of Jesus' arrival. And in this, God's reality for her life is better than anything that she could have expected. How does Luke do this in these three verses? We just have two things that we want to examine here today. Uh, one, what was expected from Anna's life, and two, what God's reality was for Anna's life. So let's start with what was expected from Anna's life. Uh, what do we know about her? Uh, we know her name. She's Anna. Anna is a Greek name meaning grace. So right off the bat, she grew up with the expectation of living out a name, grace, that was both a noun and a verb. Right? If you've ever met someone that was named this way, instantly you have expectations around them. Like meeting a high schooler named Princeton. Right? Expectations abound. Right? Anna from birth had the expectation to be Grace. And not only named after Grace, but she was named after the Hebrew name Hannah from the Old Testament. So she's named after a famous individual. It's that kind of pressure that's placed upon her. We as a reader in Luke's day, um, these readers would have known their Old Testament going to the start, making comparisons uh, to Hannah, who birthed Samuel the prophet. There are high expectations. You're going to be named after Hannah. Well, better start praying day and night and have the legacy of a family lineage of a major prophet. See, Anna, from the jump of Luke's description of her, is inviting unfair expectations on her and what we might assume her life to be. What else do we know about Anna? Well, not only that, she's a prophetess. A prophetess in the Old Testament were women of extremely bold and courageous character and in high position. Uh, think of Deborah. Uh, think of Miriam. Think of a, a, a lesser-known Old Testament character named Huldah. All of them outspoken, bold, not afraid to talk powerfully and put people in their place. These were women who could strike fear with their proclamations and were endowed with the Spirit of the Lord upon them a sign of God's favor, his blessing. So revolution is standing 
on the prophetess's shoulders. Another expectation. What else should we expect? We see here in verse 36 that she is of the tribe of Asher. Now this is a bigger deal than it might seem because while the tribe of Asher is, is spoken very little of in the Old Testament, it does speak to the fact that Anna's family has a line of faithfulness that can be traced all the way back to the original covenant promises for the 12 tribes of Israel. Anna is a part of the honored few that is the remnant of Israel's past called follow him. Anyone that has a family name that you had to live up to knows this reality. Now just imagine that your family lineage traces all the way back to the original tribes. It's like being the son of Michael Jordan and you're playing basketball, right? Can you imagine the pressure that's being added on to your family name? And if all of that expectation wasn't enough, the, the external expectation that we have as readers of Luke's gospel is that Luke puts a woman as the focal character in the narrative. Especially in scripture, when we have a woman as the main character in the story, you know something huge is about to go down in society, back, which was dominated in the ancient Near East by misogynistic patriarchy. So when you think of stories like Ruth, you think Esther, you think Abigail, you think Mary, when a woman of the Lord comes into the story to take over, something wonderful is about to go down. And God's going to receive all the glory in the most spectacular and wonderful way. So the reader is expecting something now. Amazing and wonderful and dramatic from Anna. Named after Grace, the prophetess, from the right family, who should blow everyone away and lives a dominating, interesting, dynamic lifestyle filled with wonder. That's the expectation. Who does this remind you of? This kind of woman. Maybe you have someone in mind when you think of this. I think of my mother because I'm a mama's boy and I think of her as just one of the strongest women in the world. But I would argue that Luke has someone particular in mind when he's setting up the expectations around Anna. And that someone is a woman you may not have heard of named Judith. Maybe you have heard about the book of Judith, but for those who haven't, let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, Judith was kind of like a combination between like Michelle Yeoh, Princess Leia, Aretha Franklin, Katniss Everdeen, Black Widow, Rosa Parks, like Mulan, like all rolled up into like one person, okay? All right? And so the legend has it in Judith was that she was a widow in her young age when the evil Assyrian army put all of Israel into fear and trembling, but Judith was not scared. So Judith proceeded to devise a plan which involved dressing up in such royal splendor that the king was excited to bring her into his most private courts, then proceeded to, um, then proceeded to get the king passed out from um, libations, and then executed him in the name of the Lord. So Judith, in essence, is a symbol of salvation for Israel. And then later on, as the story goes, or the legend goes, she gets courted by every man in Israel but remains a faithful widow who loves the Lord and worships God until she passes away at the age of 105, which is a number that we'll get back to later in the sermon. Where all of her years, Israel knows nothing but peace and prosperity in Judith's age. So basically, Judith was Wonder Woman in the year of 189 BC. All right? Everyone in Luke's era was aware of the Judith story. And her story is somewhat questionable as history, uh, even the Protestant reformers, like Calvin and Luther, paid their respects to the book of Judith and even lifted it up 
as a sign of faithfulness and helpful for believers to read, if not Scripture itself. Generations that followed would find fascination with Judith's legend. Any time a woman is written about in any kind of literature in Luke's day, you are thinking to yourself, the expectation comes forward that this would be maybe one of those Judith stories. All other women's stories will be compared to hers. So Luke would be keenly aware of this expectation and the family tradition in Jewish culture. So, sum it all up. Does this prophetess Anna of the tribe of Asher, this respected widow, does she live up to the expectations of the daring, exciting life like Judith? Not even close. What does Luke do to sort of sweep the rug from underneath us? You see, Anna's life faces great tragedy when she turns 21 years old, seven years after it was customary for her to have been married. Our text today tells us that she became a widow at that age, and she never remarried, even though it might have been expected for her to do so. Why? Uh, biblical scholars argue perhaps it was, means that she wasn't wealthy or in a position of power. Otherwise, suitors would have been lining up for her. Perhaps it means that she wasn't of political or social influence. So it might mean that she bore no significance to the religious and social circles of her day. We don't know, but whatever it might have been, what does Anna do with her life? She instead commits to a life in the temple. Spending her days not in wild adventure and drama like her predecessors, like her name would have her, but instead makes a humble living near the temple grounds, doing small tasks of work, of getting ready for worship, worshiping, and then spending the small tasks of preparing afterwards. She was living in a world and in a time in the world where Judaism was fading away in the culture. People were more interested in the Roman gods, and true devotion was hard to come by. And the text tells us that this was the pattern of her life for 84 years. So how does this change your perceptions of her? Think about this. Every year that she remained a widow, serving the tempo, in the eyes of society, how ordinary and unremarkable her life had become. How many of us, be honest, right, would look at her in that situation and go and think to yourself, you know, I don't think that's how I would have expected her life to go. You know, and if we were more honest with ourselves, I don't think I would want to live that life. Some of you might even bold to think in your mind, I think anyone who would want to live a life like that is just naive and no ambition. That's a wasted life. You know, the world, our own sinful thoughts, and the devil love screaming this message to us, don't they? That life is only significant if you hold up to what your name is supposed to mean. If you can hold status and position that others seem as credible. If that social circle that you really want to impress likes you, it's, it's ego. It's false religion. And we all go through this. These thoughts creep in, into those, those who serve Christ and the church. We think of the expectation of our own Christian lives and how they're supposed to go. And we set our hope in something that's close to God, but not God himself. Uh, quick demonstration maybe to convict some of us who have grown up in, in the church. Um, have you ever been called to sort of teach a Sunday school class or a VBS, right? Um, you have many expectations of how you think that lesson is going to go in front of the people that you're with, right? 
Right? Maybe <laughs> some of you in your simple moments, I'm going to teach so eloquently, so passionately, so charismatically, everyone's going to get saved. There's going to be mass revival in the second grade VBS. Like, it's going to like, just, just change everyone, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the catalyst for it. Right? Expecting levels of weeping and repentance and joy. You know, sometimes when we do this, I think we live our lives as a delusion thinking that our expectations for our Christianity is exactly how it should go. We want a world in the Christian life where every single friend and family member that we talk to is saved, where the church is free from trouble and solves every social issue of injustice. Every time we pray, we have this mountaintop experience that every sermon you hear is going to be just like the day that you came to know Jesus Christ. And if we're being really honest, as American Christians, we want to do all of this while making about $3 million a year while Jesus is standing over our shoulder, just nodding our head and patting us on the back in approval. And we begin to ask the reality of what really living the Christian life sets in. We might begin to ask the question that Google asked. Can I change? Why am I living for Jesus when things so look so difficult, so ordinary, so plain, so hard? Why does it seem like the church is the worst place to be? Does Jesus' arrival in my life really change anything? We're not immune to the thoughts that tell us that our lives are meaningless when they don't reach the expectations of ourselves. In fact, uh, a Christian's piety and pursuit of holiness can sometimes drown us into greater despair because it becomes about us praying fervently uh, or uh, you know, being so, so devotional that the devotion itself becomes the thing that we think is going to change us rather than Jesus. So here we are, looking at Anna, and in our sinful mindset, it would seem as though Anna has not lived up to expectations. But, but, what if we looked at her life differently? What if we looked at her life story as one who spent a lifetime living God's reality? awaiting the arrival of Jesus. And when you do, suddenly things begin to click together and you begin to see that Jesus' arrival brings about a better reality than we could have ever expected in our lives. And it changes everything for Anna and for you and for me. And we're going to see several ways in the text here that it does this. Uh, so there's three things to think about when we think about living, this, uh, li- uh, living in light of God's reality, not our expectations. Three things. One, it gives extraordinary purposes to ordinary patterns. Extraordinary purposes to ordinary patterns. You see, instead of seeing an obscure, failed prophetess who spends a lifetime with nothing to show for it, she uses her lifetime of service in the temple to demonstrate the faithfulness of God in honorably long-lived piety. Daily devotions in the temple. Serving and helping to facilitate worship. You know, Today's analogy would be like folding bulletins, right? That the pastor forgot to bring to church today. Cleaning and sweeping floors. Changing the batteries and the lights. Right? Praying for someone who's hurting, who's unknown, unseen. And doing it again and again so faithfully that everyone sees the dignity of the long, faithful work and journey. In an era of biblical history where experience and age are seen as strengths, not flaws, her age and her length of service would have propelled her to have instant credibility towards others, to the love that she had for others. And the extraordinary God 
she worshipped and fasted and prayed to. In her ordinary living, year to year to year, those little things would be preparing her to be able to recognize and see and worship Jesus. The culmination of her life's work is that she gets to meet him face to face. She knows who this baby is and what this baby will do as Savior because she has spent a lifetime knowing enough about the salvation to come to prepare herself to see him. She has read Isaiah. She has read the Psalms. She knows that this baby comes in the fulfillment of all the prophets have spoken of. She is ready to meet Jesus because of the ordinary procedure of life that has prepared her to know him intimately when Jesus arrives. You see, in other words, right, it's in these ordinary moments where truly God is working in ways that you cannot even begin to imagine. And it prepares you to see Christ in ways that you wouldn't apart from those ordinary things. You know, this is constant, by the way, throughout the research that's been done on individuals who are reflecting on their own lives. The loss of a loved one or the loss of an experience that has defined their existence. Uh, Dr. Brene Brown, one of the leading researchers on shame and vulnerability, notices this in a study she did when she researched reflections on one's life. She asked questions to her subjects about, you know, what do you miss most in life? And when people take a look back on their lives and try to think about what they miss most, uh, what her research showed was actually kind of shocking, but also kind of not. It's not the extravagant, the spectacular, the big highlight reel moments that they miss. It's the little ordinary things of life. Empty nesters would say things like, you know, I would just do anything to hear my sons running around arguing upstairs. People who have lost a loved one saying, you know, I just want a text message that just simply says, hey. It's congregational members coming back from COVID two years ago saying, you know, all that they really missed was congregational singing. You know, we take these things for granted, and we don't know how formative these ordinary things give to us to help us to see clearly the extraordinary grace of God. It's amazing to see uh, what modern research is confirming, what we as Christians already know, that God moves not just in flashes of lightning and miraculous conversion, but he moves in the still, small voice. The gathered church on a Sunday morning, messy devotionals in your home and your family, the love and support of a community group. Friends, if there's anything that we can learn from this today, it is not to set aside those everyday rhythms of life, that bring worship and praise to the Lord. Live in worship because of Christ's justifying work for you, right? His justifying, saving grace. It doesn't save you, right? But rest in his goodness. Rest in his grace. Rest in those ordinary rhythms. Meditate on the Savior's work for you and how much he loves you and forgives you and frees you from the expectation of others because he has fulfilled the expectations of God on the cross for you. Sabbath. And know in these ordinary means of grace, you will come to realize how extraordinary these things are in a world that believes that being overworked, overscheduled, and exhaustive is ordinary. What else do we see in this better reality of God's reality of Anna's life? The second thing, second thing, uh, that it gives significance to the suffering. You know, 
uh, the loneliness that accompanies the unexpected loss of a spouse as Anna would have experienced, uh, the pain of being undesirable. Obviously not being remarried meant that she was someone who wasn't desired by society. Living single in a society that idolizes marriage and family and marginalizes those who aren't. These are all realities that Anna surely must have faced. But the pain that she faced from these things are not hindrances to her reputation or her character or her witness to the world. Rather, they are, they are badges of honor that serve as witness of faithfulness and steadfastness to the temple community. Her daily worship in the face of tremendous loss gives only greater glory to the testimony and steadfast love of the Lord. Her loneliness as a single person isn't suffering without meaning. It's there to show the sufficiency of the gospel and the good news that God is enough. Her sufferings would foretell the sufferings of the Savior, the one who fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, the Christ who would feel the sting of loneliness when all whom he loved would betray him, the Christ who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, the Christ who bore our sufferings and shame due to our sin and take it upon himself on the cross so that he could be raised to life on the third day and bring salvation and life to those who would believe in his name. You see, as we talked about in 1 Peter, it was the humiliation and the sufferings of Christ that led to the highest exaltation and glory. So it's the humiliations and suffering of Anna that pointed others to know Christ and to glorify God because of him. The Christian hope brings great perspective and purpose of God's reality behind the suffering. I love this quote from the African-American poet and speaker Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, she writes this, um, if only the angel had come to deliver Jesus from every fear, anxiety, pain, sorrows, difficulty, temptation, or whatever else his body had to carry, but his father did something completely different than deliver his son into ease. Not allowing Jesus to skip the adversity of obedience, he sent the angel to simplify, simply strengthen the son so he could endure it. If Jesus needed the strength to endure for the sake of obedience to his father, how much more do we? What we can learn from Perry is this. If you're here today and you're trying to make sense of your life, the meaningless nature of maybe suffering that you have faced, your pain is a catalyst for Christ to serve you even more. It's your suffering that will be a witness to believers, to non-believers, to the world, to a name and a title that is worth carrying of your burdens, the name of Jesus Christ, a child of God. It will help us to see the greatness of our need for Jesus even more and invade the longings of our hearts. It's one of the most poetic paradoxes of the gospel, that pain leads to resilience, that suffering leads to glory, longing that leads to fulfillment. The shame of Christ that he, he took so our shame could be removed before the throne of God himself. So we, looking to Christ like Anna, worshiping God like Anna, embracing the pain that we have lived, God receives the most glory. Because you can't have hope in Jesus' arrival if you don't have a despair that Jesus can fill. So let your suffering be filled with the Savior's promise. And like Anna, to know that it serves as a daily testimony of his grace 
and encouragement to others. Third thing, and last takeaway we can get from this, is that God's reality for Anna's life is actually greater than anything we could ever expect of our lives. God's reality is greater than anything we could ever expect for our lives. Do you know why Luke's gospel is so fascinating? If you ever read through the book of Luke, and this is a perfect season to do so, you'll know that he often writes about people with names and titles that goes against the grain of all your expectations. Rather than the respected, dignified, honorable people understanding Jesus, it's the tax collectors, the thief on the cross, the Roman centurion, all kinds of people with various types of diseases, lepers, and even disciples who denied him three times. Luke isn't about fulfilling your societal normative expectations for what you see because he wants you to see something deeper about these characters beyond what is expected of them. He wants you to look beyond their names and their titles and find something beautiful in the way that they live and the way that they respond to Jesus. He wants you to show the grace of God working in this world to those people groups you might not expect, to the Gentiles, to the poor, to the insignificant, to the orphan, to the widow. In Isaiah, it states, to the oppressed and to the marginalized that the mercy and grace of Christ is powerful enough for all who live and all who call upon his name, no matter what you have or have not live up to in the expectation of your life. God's reality is always better than what we expect. God's reality is better than both your greatest dreams or even your most fearful of nightmares. And the reality of Anna's life is so much better than the expectations that Luke readers would have projected on her. Now you see, in Luke's gospel, she is the last person to see and witness the baby Jesus. Her life is the end note of Jesus' infancy, this faithful woman who suffered and endured all for a glimpse of Christ. This woman whose aging and frail body, seemingly unextraordinarily extraordinary life, leads to an extraordinary revelation of seeing her Savior being born and presented at the temple where she lived. And her joy is palpable, isn't it? We see in these verses, she's spreading the news to anyone she could find. Her joy cannot be contained as she was telling people, did you know that everything that we have been waiting for has arrived? Jesus is alive. Jesus is here. The consolation of Israel, who was long awaited for, has And because of that, I believe that Luke is setting up the conclusion to say something very poignant about Anna's life. That Anna's life in God's reality was actually better than all the versions of the women that she was uh, expected to be. Not Hannah, not Grace, not Miriam, but something more profound. Now, why do I believe this? There is a huge debate among biblical scholars that is often overlooked and that is Anna's age. They argue that a correct translation of verse 37 is that Anna was a widow for 84 years, not that she was 84. Meaning that if she was married, as was customary in Judaism at the age of 14, married for seven years before her husband had passed, at 21, 21 plus 84 would make her 
the age when she encounters Jesus at 105 years old. And scholars can't seem to shake this weird correlation with 105 and the Judith legend. The widow Judith, who lost her husband at a young age, who never remarried, who fasted and prayed and gave glory to God, who lived this glorious, legendary life and lifestyle, this 105-year-old Judith in a time of Israel's salvation 200 years before Christ, this fact isn't a coincidence in the minds of those who study Scripture. And suddenly the comparison that Luke is making is saying something that might be worth a good biblical speculation about. So let's speculate together. Here's mine. What if Luke, in making all these connections to the powerful, strong, legendary women of God, is saying that the real heroic life is not found in the Judith lore or in the fantasy stories that glorify the bold and bombastic life, but what if, he, if Luke is saying the real heroic life is found in living in the reality of Anna? That 105 years of ordinary living for the Lord is the heroic life well lived. I find this incredibly compelling. To me, this lines us perfectly with why other people that no one would have guessed are the first to see Jesus. Why he calls people like you and I to himself. It's those who have seemingly the most mundane, undistinguished lives that speak the greatest testimony of God's reality working in and through them. It would almost be as though Luke is saying here with Anna that those who carry on in the ordinary means of grace might be able to see Jesus in a way that no one else will. That you don't need a dramatic testimony, a dramatic career change, a glorified skill set, an emotional spiritual high, or a rationalistic apologetic logic coming to Jesus to encounter the joys of God's reality. That true intimacy with God, a true model of a life well lived, is just simply being right where you are and right where God has called you to be. That every life is precious, filled with meaning and joy and purpose in the mundane. That you have worth in the kingdom of God, no matter what your name is, your title, or how high your occupation rank is, or your productive output, or the good deeds that you do. Because in the very testimony of your everyday life, you just might be closer to the heart of Jesus than any other celebrity could ever be. Do you remember Jesus' unexpected life? Instead of being born in a kingdom palace, he arrived in a manger. Instead of a life filled with parade and splendor, Jesus comes riding as a king on a donkey and lives homeless and penniless. Instead of being born of royalty in the city center, he is born in Nazareth. Instead of inaugurating the kingdom with armies of angels and a golden throne, he trades it all for a criminal's cross, a man of sorrow, the crown of thorns. Instead of millions of followers, Jesus has choose 12 nobodies to walk with him in a seemingly random path that leads to his death. Instead of the riches of the world to claim as his own, Jesus gives up his rights and does not, as Philippians 2 says, equate equality with God, something to be grasped. Why? So that sinners like you and I could find peace with God and joy living for him. So that at the name of Jesus, right, the conclusion of Philippians 2, every knee would bow. 
God's reality would show that every tongue would confess at this unexpected, unimpressive, unremarkable life of our Savior. You see, God's reality is greater than any expectation we have for ourselves. And Jesus' arrival is every bit of testimony of that. So, for us, as a people of Advent, maybe for us who live seemingly unremarkable lives, we will find the greatness of God. We will find a Messiah, the hope of the world, the fount of every blessing, the life well lived. Jesus' arrival gives you a reality beyond your wildest dreams. And he's calling you to live this extraordinary, ordinary life until he comes again. Let's pray together.